God of all creation, we offer our gifts in gratitude this morning, not just for what you do in our lives, but for who you are. We give thanks that you work on us from above, pouring out grace and mercy from beside us, comforting and healing our hearts from within us, transforming us from the inside out. May these gifts be tools that make our transformation and the transformation of the world a known reality. We pray in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of today's epistle lesson from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, Theron, thank you so much for reading our lesson uh, this morning. Grace and peace to each of you in the name of Christ. It is extra good to be in worship with you on this first Sunday in June uh, as summer descends upon us. I know we have a number of folks who are on vacation and resting uh, with their families, and we hope that that will be a part of your plans for this summer as well. Um, so, so grateful to our chancel choir, to our musicians, to Jubilation choir that we're all praying for as they go to Cincinnati and they uh, have been with us this morning since uh, dark 30. They were here early, sang for 8.30 and we're so grateful to them and for you, for your presence, it is so good to be in God's house. Casey, thank you for leading us this morning and Theron for the word that you've shared with us. If you're joining us today for the first time, you've caught us right smack dab in the middle of a series on Hebrews. We're continuing this morning our study of Hebrews in this, the fourth of seven messages in a series called Anchored, or as I've been referring to, Anchored Down, uh, which did not go well last night for the Commodores, uh, although I noticed that uh, UT fans did really, really, really well. That was one of the best games that was ever played uh, when they beat Clemson, and we're proud of uh, the volunteers for their work on the, on the diamond on the field. Uh, we've said all along that this particular epistle is not so much a letter as it is a sermon. It's a sermon within sermons that contains the apostolic preaching of the early church. The preacher in this case, whoever it was, whether it was Apollos or Silas or Paul or Priscilla and Aquilus, we don't know for sure, but the preacher in this letter takes the congregation on a long Christological journey explaining the nature and work of Christ as it pertains to our salvation. Uh, 
But in chapter 10, verse 19, he moves from theology to practice. And I, for one, when we move from theology to practice, I'm all ears at this point. Every sermon needs a so what section. And this is the so what section of Hebrews, of this, the preaching of the early church. Uh, you remember Peter's Pentecost sermon. We celebrated Pentecost last week, Acts 2, uh, where after Peter preached that wonderful sermon in the streets of Jerusalem, that people rushed to him and asked the question, Peter, what must we do? In other words, so what? What do we have to do about it? And Peter told them, repent and be baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of sins and receive the Holy Spirit. He told them, so what? And they did it. And there were 3,000 that day who responded to the so what question in Acts 2. Every sermon needs a what must we do application. And we have it in Hebrews 10, beginning with verse 19. In fact, you can see it coming in the cue of the word, therefore. Whenever a sentence, whenever a text or a document begins with the word, therefore, it's a call to arms. It's a call to action. And so I think you can make a case for the fact that everything prior to the word, therefore, in Hebrews 10 is preamble. It's prologue. It's a preface. It's what we would call the whereas stuff. If you've ever read a political document, you could spend your lifetime in the whereas section. And oftentimes we rush to see the therefore. What's the call to arms? What's the call to action? But the whereas is critical. And I want to give you the revised chapel version of the first 10 chapters up to verse 19 of Hebrews. Whereas Jesus is the heir of God, the only son of the Father, whereas Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, whereas Jesus is superior to the angels, to Moses, to the law, to the high priest of Israel, whereas Jesus has offered himself as the sufficient and perfect sacrifice for our sins on the cross, whereas Jesus has ascended to the true sanctuary, interceding for us at the right hand of the throne, whereas Jesus has given full access to the Father, making possible a new covenant with better promises written not on stone, but in our hearts, therefore, here comes. Here's the so what. And then he offers us three so what's, three admonitions. This is perfect for a Methodist preacher. It's a three-point sermon at this point. Let us approach God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. That's about worship. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. That's about doctrine. Let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. That's practice, that's discipleship. Now, I want to leave that screen there for just a moment because I want to call to your attention a couple of things that I think are worth noting in these admonitions. First, this particular call to action involves, notice the italicized words, faith, hope, and love. These are the core values of the congregation to whom the writer is writing. In fact, it calls to mind Paul's letter to Corinth, 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope and love abide, endure, but the greatest of these is love. 
These are the values of the congregation that will keep them anchored in Christ and in each other. The second thing I want to call your attention to is the pronouns in these verses. They are not singular personal pronoun. They are plural personal. Since we have such a high priest, let us approach with full assurance. These plural pronouns remind us that faith is not just individual. It's not just personal. No, it's communal, it's collective, it's collaborative. I think when, this is why when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, you remember this, I think it's in Luke 6, that Jesus said, when you pray, say, our Father. Not mine, not yours, ours. Now, I, I, have, I have a few pet peeves. My staff can tell you what they are if you're interested. But one of my pet peeves is when someone puts in the context of a religious conversation personal possessive pronouns. Like when someone says, my God, or my Jesus, or my Bible says, that just bugs me. That's a pet peeve of mine. Because the pronoun is intended to be plural. We, us, our. That means that we're family. That means that we're kinfolk. We're related to each other through our Father. In verse 19, Theron, that you read for us, it's interesting how the writer refers to the congregation as friends or brothers and sisters in another paraphrase. And the Greek word for friends is adelphos, get this, which means from the same womb. We're brothers and sisters, we're family. I don't know if you've ever discovered this. I have the hard way. It is really, really hard to be faithful in isolation. It's so hard to be a disciple by yourself. I mean, it takes, it takes this. It takes a village. It takes a community. Faith is, is a we proposition. I was reading recently the, the preamble to the United States Constitution and then I noticed that the preamble begins with the pronoun we. That's important. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty, get this, to ourselves and our Posterity, we do so ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. All the pronouns, they're plural. In other words, to achieve unity, whether it's in a nation or an organization or a business or a church, to achieve unity, you have to get over yourself. I have to get over myself. It's not just about me. It's not just about you. It's about us. In fact, the acronym US, us. E pluribus unum, out of the many. We're one. But I've discovered that sometimes I'm better at us and them than I am about us. You know what I mean? 
The us and them mentality, I think, stems from our need to belong to a group, which is not in itself bad. That's a good thing. We're, by the fact that we're made in the image of God, we're all social creatures that need to belong. It's just how we're made. But I've discovered that sometimes our groupishness or our group think can lead to irrational favoritism which ends up elevating some forms of humanity and devaluing others. And when we do this, when I do this, I actually become less human, not more human. You know the name Cody Johnson? Any of you who love country music, Cody Johnson, who is featured now as the new George Strait. Great country musician, he has six albums already that he published himself and now he's hit the big time. He, he's got a song that he's made famous. I love this song, and it's called Human. The refrain, he comes from a little town in Texas. I can't even pronounce it. Uh, Mason, who's our contemporary guy who's from Texas, didn't even, never heard of this particular town. But here's the, here's the refrain for Human by Cody Johnson. I won't sing it. I'll spare you that. All the headlights, all the midnights, chasing all that empty, still ain't got it right. All the crazy and the gypsy, I guess all I'm saying is forgive me. If I don't know what I'm doing, I'm still learning to be human. I love that. That sounds like a good confessional prayer before we come to the table. Human is a beautiful thing, but it takes a long time to learn to be human, particularly in the way that Jesus taught us. What I'm saying is that sometimes us and them creeps into the church. And when it does, the mission gets a little bit narrow. I, I tend to reach people who are more like me and you instead of us. It's interesting to me that the two pillars on which the church is built are these, the great commandment, which says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And by the way, you don't get to choose your neighbor. And the Great Commission, go ye into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And the word for nations in the Greek is ethne. It means people groups, all people groups. The church is not an us-them proposition. It's a we proposition, although to be sure, we are exclusive in our confession. Jesus is Lord, there is none other. But at the same time, we are inclusive in our conduct. And having an exclusive confession doesn't make us less loving. I think it makes us more loving to the point that God may actually enable us to love our enemies, them, whoever them is, and pray for them, those who persecute us. If God is indeed love, then to be unloving is to be ungodly. Here's a quote of the day. This comes from a Baptist preacher named Andy Stanley, whose daddy died recently at age 90. Charles Stanley, Tim Keller was another great Presbyterian pastor, both of whom have died in recent days. Andy Stanley said recently, Jesus had a hard time with good people who weren't good to people. 
That convicts me. Jesus had a hard time with good people who weren't good to people. I don't know if you've seen the new TV ads recently, the last year. Jesus gets us. Have you seen these? Jesus gets us, all of us. It's interesting, not some of us, not a remnant of us, but all of us. And whenever, whenever I see those commercials, it reminds me of Hebrews 4.15 that says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tested as are we, yet without sin. Jesus gets us because he's one of us. In the incarnation, he becomes like us so that we might then become like him. I was reading about this campaign, Jesus Gets Us, and get this, the campaign's stated goal is to reintroduce the Jesus of the Bible to younger demographics and religious skeptics by allusions between his teachings and present-day social movements with an emphasis on values such as mercy, compassion, and radical forgiveness. So that when you see these commercials, it's not a come to Jesus thing, it's a Jesus comes to us kind of thing. So if Jesus gets us, if Jesus really understands us, then maybe the church needs to be a little more understanding too, maybe. In our senior video, you remember it was Mother's Day. We were celebrating our moms and also featuring our graduating seniors from high school. And in that video a few weeks ago, I was really moved by a comment from Caroline Meyer, one of our graduating seniors, who said this in the video. The church loved me even before they knew me. And I thought that was pretty profound. I went home, contemplated that. I said to my wife, I think there's actually a bigger miracle than that. And that is that the church can love me even after they know me. Now, that's a miracle. I've always been told that familiarity breeds contempt. Not with us. Familiarity breeds grace. Familiarity breeds mercy. Familiarity breeds unconditional love. The church loves us even after they know us. What a marvelous thing. One other thing I want to mention before we come to the table. I want to think briefly with you just a couple of minutes about that last so what, that last admonition. Let us consider, this is the last one, how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as the day is approaching. What day? The parousia, the return, the end time. I'm captivated when I read that text by the word provoke. Paraxino is the word in Greek. It has negative connotations to us, provocation, provoke. It literally, it means to irritate somebody, to pester someone. I wanna ask you a question I don't want you to answer. Has anybody here ever been irritated with the church 
Oh, I see some body language. Don't answer that. I've met a handful of folk, just a few in my 40 years of ministry, who, who really seem to have the spiritual gift of pestering the pastor. And they were pretty proficient at it. I want to ask you another question. Don't answer. Have any of you ever been provoked with the pastor? Please don't answer. Some of you have been. And if you haven't been, I want to say to you, don't worry, it's early. We've still got time. But sometimes in every family, in every system, whether it's at home or church or business, you've got some folks that just get on your nerves, don't you? Have sharp elbows or so to speak. We all know that. And sometimes even in the church, there's somebody here that bugs you. You just don't see eye to eye. But I'll tell you something, in 40 years, more often, a million times more often than those who have irritated me have been those who incited me and prodded me to be better, to be more loving, to be more gracious, to be more godly. And how do we do that? By rubbing shoulders with brothers and sisters from the same womb who stick with it, who put their hand to the plow and refuse to turn back, who are anchored in a body in Christ because this is us. This is where spirituality and growth happen. A couple of weeks ago, we read a section of Hebrews 5. I didn't comment on it, wasn't sure I should, but Hebrews 5, 12 and 14, where the preacher is actually pestering the people. And he says things to them that are hard to hear. In fact, this is the Revised Chapel version, so take it for what it's worth. The author says, some of you, some of us need to grow up. Some of us are a little lazy, stagnant, a little bit dull in our understanding. In fact, he says, by now you ought to be teaching Sunday school, but you're still being spoon-fed on milk and formula, if you can find it, when you ought to be eating solid food. You need to take off the bib and put on the apron. Now, I have to tell you, when I read that, I thought if I had been in that congregation and read that, that would have annoyed me. That would have irritated me. Who do you think? And it must have been to them. But in retrospect, when they went home, they actually appreciated the preacher's prodding and they rose to his expectations. I have to tell you, my goal as a pastor is to rise to my people's expectations because I have never been the most spiritual person in any church, but I know who you are and I rub shoulders. I want to be better. Last word. Last Monday was Memorial Day and we we're with our grandson in Clarksville, Georgia, mountains of North Georgia. Sherry went up on Saturday before Sunday. I stayed for the service and they tuned in for worship online. I have a picture of my wife and grandson tuning in online. Have I told you I have a grandson? 
You aware of that? She said he watched with great interest trying to figure out how his granddaddy got inside his television and why on earth his grandfather was wearing that gown, those funny clothes, and exhorting people in pews. He's trying to figure it out. He's already curious about the church, about life. He's heard the name of Jesus. And I joined them on Memorial Day, and we played out in the yard, and this boy loves bubbles. He loves bubbles more than some of you love Jesus. <laughs> you can see. Sherry found him a bubble-making toy for $2.99 at the Walmart where he could spread his joy abroad, and he did it all afternoon, and slap wore us out. Here's how it worked. He would shoot the bubbles. I'd try to catch them and eat them, which brought him great joy and in turn made me nauseous. <laughs> it was a good day for chasing bubbles. But it occurred to me that 20 years from now, 25 years from now, if that boy is still out in the yard chasing bubbles, something went bad wrong. In the years to come, he'll, he'll grow up, not too fast, I hope, but he's going to move from toddler to boy to adolescent to adulthood, and we hope and pray that he will discover a larger purpose in life than chasing bubbles, but some never do. Our hope and prayer is that he will find his greatest joy in Christ and that he might just fix his anchor, not on playthings, but in a high priest who will give him full access to joy unspeakable and also that would tether him to the communion of saints who will love him before they know him and then love him because they know him because this is us. It's who we are. It's just what we do. And we too, all of us, can know the joy when we find our place at a table of a host who gets us, all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.